Lord, this morning we desire to, to worship you and to see more clearly what you have uh, revealed to us that we may better share your word and light with those that are in darkness. We desire to be effective. We desire to have an impact on the culture we live in. Also desire to be equipped to be able to do everything that you have called us to do. So we just pray that this passage might help us in that, in understanding, and also in motivating us to reach out to those that are in the condition that are described here. So we just commit our time to you, and Lord, if there be anything that hinders us from maximizing what you might have for us, we put those aside, and if it be sin, confess it, allow you to draw us to yourself in fellowship. We desire this morning that we be changed by your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. This morning, in our study in the book of Romans, we're going to look at what you might consider a depressing portion here because it describes the condition of lost humanity. And certainly when Paul was ministering in the city of Rome, there were lots of people that fit in the category of lostness. And that's certainly the case in our culture. And it's good to understand some of these things that Paul is laying out in the book of Romans. He's writing to believers He's not writing hoping that a reader will somehow understand the gospel message. He's writing to believers to equip them that they have a clear understanding in order to best communicate the gospel to the lost people. So he's writing to people like you and I. We need to understand not only the situation of people, but to realize in sharing, in fact, this week I sat in on a little discussion on apologetics. Now, they didn't talk about this passage, but... Apologetics is just an attempt to get people ready or prepared in order to understand and to receive the gospel message. And one principle to keep in mind in apologetics, that's defending the faith for those that are skeptical, that's what apologetics is, keep in mind the idea that there are no such things as atheists. We talked about that last time. Anyone who professes to be an atheist has done nothing more than suppress the truth that God has already revealed. And you can appeal to people on the basis of that. In other words, I mean, you don't tell them, well, you're not really an atheist. But you can recognize they may not even be aware of it because they have deceived themselves into believing that there's no God. But in reality, there is something within them that can and sometimes does respond to a clear gospel message. Linda? Lots of times they know a lot about the God. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, they know... That's all they know. Right, and that's true. So you can can operate and share the gospel on the basis that there is that commonality there. There is that bridge, if you will, between the unbeliever and what we believe. So, the book of Romans deals with these issues where God has provided righteousness, but it's not unconditional in the sense that it's not automatic, I guess is a better word, because man is condemned, and this is the passage that introduces this whole area, and we must share that concept in order that people understand that, in order for them to be ready to receive the gospel message. So, humanity is guilty. Because he has rejected God. That's verses 18 through 23. Hopefully we'll conclude that portion this morning. 
It's got three parts, at least the way I've outlined it. We have revelation and reasons for God's wrath. In other words, God is revealed or is revealing wrath. He's going to come back to that. He starts the passage with that and then he's going to come back to that at the end of the chapter. And then in 19, he gives the beginning of reasons for wrath. God has revealed himself, but man has rejected that revelation in general. Those that respond to this revelation, we're talking about general revelation. I believe God sends special revelation so they can hear about Jesus Christ. But in general, mankind rejects that revelation, and there are consequences, there are results of that rejection. That's 22 and 23, the verses we're going to look at this morning. And even though there's two verses there, you might think, how is he going to get through two verses? Well, one of them is pretty short, but I still may not get through both of them. Anyway, quick summary, verse 18, man is under God's wrath. And then 19 through 23, we have reasons for that wrath. Paul is arguing his case before the judge of the universe, laying down all of the details of a a case against mankind. And God will render wrath, verses 24 through 32, and it's in the present tense. So we can observe this right around us in everyday everyday living. So it's kind of an outline of this larger paragraph in chapter 1. Chapter 2, which we won't get to for, I don't know when, deals with another specific category of humanity. I think he's dealing with humanity in general, applying to every individual, Jew or Gentile. Chapter 2, he's going to deal specifically because the ones that resist that the most are the religious. And the religious in the day of Paul were the Jewish community that had rejected Messiah. So that's kind of a broad contextual view of this passage. We left off, verse 21, and you could even say that the results begin right here. For even though they knew God, in other words, mankind has a clear revelation Past tense, in other words, reality, every human being has some knowledge, some understanding of the one true God. And verse 20 lays out where that revelation comes from. So even though they knew God, they did not honor him. In other words, mankind rejects God or did not glorify him. We focused on that last time. Or give him thanks. In other words, acknowledge that all things come from him, ultimately, to give him thanks, even every breath. But, and here's where we left off, they became futile in their speculations. There's consequences to rejecting revelation. And what he's going to lay out here is essentially the history of humanity from the very beginning. And you can see this in every culture, in every age, at every time frame, that this is what happens to mankind. Once we reject, and I say we because we are part, and those that have trusted Christ have been rescued out of the condition, so people become futile in their speculations. So our whole thinking, our whole mental perspective, our whole intellect is damaged. And we go down a road that does several things. So the first result, we looked at this last time, our thinking is distorted. Everything that we look at from here on out, once we reject that, our thinking is affected. 
Speculations, we'll talk about that. Those are thoughts or ideas, concepts. The word that describes that, futility, the idea of emptiness. In other words, thoughts that don't really have ultimate consequence or thoughts that don't really impact reality in terms of long term, terms of eternity. So it's empty. There's nothing there in the thinking. And it's ultimately worthless when it comes to spiritual things. So from a scientific perspective, you can't figure out God. You can't perform an experiment to demonstrate God. Any attempt to try to come up with an idea of God is worthless. We've talked about that. We've talked about the the concept of the incomprehensibility of God, the inability to understand God apart from revelation. Not the unknowability of God, we can know God, but it's only as a result of God revealing himself to us. Incomprehensibility, we don't have the ability. We don't have a capacity to really grasp God. What is that? Mataio. Pronounce it for me. That's a hard one for me. I don't know why. It's got too many vowels in there. Say it. Metao. Okay. Metao. Empty, worthless. The noun, emptiness, same idea. Purposelessness. In other words, the thoughts are without purpose, without substance to them. That's the unbelieving thinking process. It's not that they can't think because... Some of the most brilliant people around us are unbelievers and even claim to be atheists. But in terms of anything that's going to have eternal significance, it's totally worthless. And then we have the the other word, dialogismas, thoughts. In other words, the intellect, the, the ability to reason, that is affected by the fall. We've talked about that. That's part of deadness. Intellectual deadness is part of what happened to Adam and Eve, and you can even see that in the garden, in that their thinking is distorted immediately after sin. The concept that mankind can hide or even flee from an omnipresent God. There's some illogic there. Adam and Eve understood that God is omnipresent, and yet they try to hide so that the whole Mental processes are are damaged by the fall, part of deadness. That continues, and this verse kind of supports that idea. So the thoughts, the reasonings are essentially dead, and they are futile or worthless, empty, purposeless. So it's the inability to know spiritual things. So an inability to know spiritual things in general. The mind is clouded. Unable to discern things that are beyond the material, physical realm. And a couple of verses we need to look at that uh, confirm this. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 2.14. Somebody want to look that one up? Connie's got it. Ephesians 4.17 and 18. It's another passage. Jenny, you got it? 2.14. The natural man does not receive the spirit of God. Let me stop there. Who's the natural man? Us. Us. In other words, the person without spiritual regeneration, just that everyday natural person, you might even say the material person, the person that doesn't have Christ. The person not yet met Christ. Just everybody, like we all were. Very good. So keep reading. The natural man does not what? He does not receive those things, and he cannot... He has the inability to understand spiritual things. 
Kind of parallel to what we're talking about here. And then you have Ephesians 4. He's talking about, now he uses the word Gentile there, but he's talking to people that, you know, in a Jewish culture, a Gentile was an unbeliever, somebody that uh, didn't know Yahweh. Read the passage. So this I say, and I'm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, also in the utility of your mind. Now he's addressing believers at Ephesus, people that have been rescued out, but he describes their past condition. You want to read that? Darkened in their understanding. Darkened in their understanding, the intellect. Excluded from the life of God because ignorance. Ignorance. Keep reading. Hardness. Hardness of their heart. In fact, in that whole context, you keep reading, it keeps talking and going back to the intellect and the inability of the intellect. So that's what's described here. There are consequences to rejecting God's revelation. And what man has to do is come up with alternative theories, other ideas to explain. One of the most prominent ideas today, this is why it is resisted so much. In the unbelieving world, you have to have an alternative, and if you don't have something to explain away God, then you're empty. You you don't have anything, and the best solution to that is the theory of evolution. I think this whole genderless stuff is... Yeah, our whole thinking is distorted, and, and it kind of spills over to all kinds of other areas. In fact, just to kind of illustrate that, I don't know if any of you have been seeing this sign. It's popping up all over my neighborhood. And I've been riding around and seeing this all over, popping up. But there are a lot of things in that little sign. Like I said, there's about 10 of them just in my little square where I live, or at least that I've observed. I haven't gone down every street. But look at the thinking here. I mean, some of this is nonsensical. Some of it is not only illogical, but a lot of it is even, in some cases, contradictory. No human is illegal. Does that mean rapists are not illegal? Does that mean criminals are not illegal? Uh, You know, it's nonsensical. Or love is love. Well, water is water. (laughs) White is what? I mean, kind of nonsensical, right? This is kind of thinking that spills over and it touches a lot of other areas. Kind of intellectual non-truth, if you will. Women's rights are human rights. And then somebody added there, health care is a right, not a privilege. Black lives matter. Well, that's kind of been a big debate. Well, what about white lives or what about other lives? You know, Water is life. Well, that's kind of true, but it's probably a better statement. Necessary for coffee, so it yeah. really is true. Yeah. <laughs> Kindness is everything, okay? Well. He's a rapist kind? Yeah, right, right. Who are you doing that with So I came up with an alternative. In this house, this is what they believe. In my house, in this house, we believe the Bible. Law breaking is not legal, right? That makes a lot more sense. It's more biblical. God is love, not love is love. God is love. And I know the implication of love is love. It's that idea that A man can love a man, a woman can love a woman, and, you know, that sort of thing. But in reality, God is love, and immoral behavior is devastating. Can't leave that off in terms of a discussion of love. Science is real, well, I agree, but it has to be based on reality, because there's a lot of fake science today. There's a lot of scientism, you might say. I'm just kind of illustrating how our minds 
unless we have a foundation, unless we have revelation, our minds go into all these different areas. Women's rights are protected by God's law. That's a better statement, don't you think? All lives matter. And a person that put up that sign, I'm going to ask them, how about lives in the womb? How about black lives in the womb? Do they matter? Because it's going to contradict some of their other ideas. Jesus is the water of life, right? And the creator is the source of everything, not kindness. The creator is the source of all things. Those are biblical statements. So, when are you going to get that printed up for yard sign? I need to do that, yeah. <laughs> you want to take up a, a collection, we'll be happy to help you do that. Okay, we'll, we'll have to use that as a project. <laughs> Any of you seen this in your neighborhood? No. no? Yeah, sure. You have? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she lives in the same liberal neighborhood I do. <laughs> okay. Well, verse 21 Well, this whole passage, God has revealed himself. There's revelation available. There's knowledge that God has bestowed on mankind, and man has realized it. In other words, he's grasped it. Things they have known, talks about in the passage, 19 and 20. So that makes man responsible there without excuse, the end of verse 20 says. 21, man has rejected that revelation in general. And there's consequences of that. So let's talk about consequences. He's also rationalized it away. comes up with an alternative theory, alternative idea. That's rationalization. And their foolish heart was darkened. So not just the intellect. I think what this deals with is the whole moral realm. In other words, the whole morality that produces lifestyle, produces everything else in life. He's talking about the heart. It's from the heart that things rise up. The heart was darkened. And it even includes the idea of foolishness there. So he's using another negative term. So we have destructive morality. The Greek word, asunetas, senseless and foolish, almost parallel to that other word, futile. Then it's also got the idea of darkening, the verb forms, skotizomai, to become dark. And throughout Scripture, you have kind of an interplay. In fact, most of the passages that use that verb and also the corresponding nouns, there's a couple of them, have the idea of darkness. They're in contrast to spiritual light. In other words, light. Christ and God give light. Apart from that, we are in darkness. So a darkened heart. And what does this mean? It means that we have a moral inability to do spiritual things. Not only do we have the inability to know and understand spiritual things, but now we have the the inability to do spiritual things or produce anything spiritual. This is depravity. By the way, on your outline sheet, in the margins there, kind of an outline within an outline, I have the results of all of this, and we'll look at them on another slide as well. But I'm kind of highlighting these first two. So the moral inability to do spiritual things. We can't produce anything of eternal value because of deadness. It's a blurring of right and wrong. We don't have a clear understanding of right and wrong. Now, we have that sense from conscience, but it's distorted oftentimes and sometimes totally reversed in terms of what's right and what's wrong. What happens to the unbeliever is now the flesh, because you don't have any spiritual resource. The flesh and emotions control actions. 
What do I want deep inside? Or what stimulates me in terms of emotions to, to action? I'm re- reacting emotionally now rather than from a biblical perspective or from a foundational level. So our emotions and flesh begin to control our actions. And there's a couple of verses that indicate that. Somebody else look up Matthew 15 who wants to do that one. Mark's got that one. Similar, Luke 6, 45. Craig's got it? Okay. Mark. Very important. And notice the word heart is involved in this passage. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Come from the thought. In other words, words come from the heart. And if you have a darkened heart, what does it produce? Keep reading. Those defile the man. For out of the heart came evil thoughts, murderers, adulterers, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slander. It's out of the heart, and if you have a darkened heart, it produces murderers, it produces thefts, and all the things that are described there. Actions. That's the source of actions. And if an unbeliever has a darkened heart, well, he does, because the text tells us, That's what it produces. Maybe not always in the extreme, but the alternative is that nothing eternal is produced out of that. And you've got Luke 6.45, Craig. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good. Okay, you can produce good things possibly as well. Regenerated heart produces good things. Go ahead. And an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, whether good or evil, that's the source of what comes out, whether it's out of our mouth or whether it's out of our actions. So a darkened heart now responds simply out of the flesh, out of emotions. They control those actions. There's a blurring of right and wrong. Some actions are viewed as good, and in reality they're evil. The total inability, the moral inability to do spiritual things, that's lostness. The heart is the center of belief. Yes. It's the belief center. Yes. In fact, there are some passages that, that include the thinking processes of the heart. There's others that include the emotional responses in, from the heart. There's others that include the will and the heart. So it's the source of all that comes out of us the innermost being, the innermost person. And the unbeliever, it's darkened, according to this passage. And that's a darkening process, and it becomes harder and harder, the hardening of a heart. Lots of passages indicating that as well. So that's part of the results. We might summarize it by using the word, if we want to stick with ours here, reprobation, 21 and 22. Reprobation. Terry. How do you explain, and I know it comes out of the, the heart, but an unbeliever, when you say good, can do kind things, good things, mm-hmm. and a, a believer can do bad things. What are the, the but the, the, the heart, it's not from the heart. How do you explain that? Well, there's a lot of good things that are very temporal and not lasting. The, the unbeliever cannot produce anything that is eternal and lasting and truly significant in terms of real spiritual impact. They may be good in terms of, but oftentimes it's self-serving. In other words, I'll be good to you because someday I hope that you'll be good to me. So that's what the unbeliever does. So it's short-term good and oftentimes self-serving good. That's something 
I mean, even believers have to really be going back to the Lord and saying, is this your good or is this just because it gives me warm fuzzies for doing it? Yeah, we still have, by the way, building on that, we still have the old nature that produces all the same thing. The difference is we've been given a new nature. We now have in Christ the capacity through the new nature to be able to produce that that is good, so that is eternally choice, good. Actually, have a choice. Yes, don't have a choice. Exactly. We can exactly simply right. choose who we will respond to, whether it's our old nature or, or the, the new the nature that's been given to us. Exactly, Bill. The ability of unbelievers to do good things is an example of God's gentle grace. Yes, we're taught in Scripture that the rain falls on the just and the unjust mm-hmm. alike. Yes, exactly. General grace, or there's another word. 22 and 23. How many sentences, first of all? Start to analyze this. One sentence, that's why I include them together. How many clauses? Two? Hmm. I only see one with a compound verb. Is that exchange the glory. Okay, one clause. So this, in reality, is a simple sentence. With lots with, of two, with a lot of modifiers. Two-part two part verb. So what is the subject? They. they. And what are the verbs? Well, exchange. Yeah. There you go. They became fools in exchange. Everything in the sentence is telling you something about that. So all the little modifiers are just adding to this idea. So they as whom? The unbelievers. That's the context. And They became fools, so this is a product or a result of what happened prior, which is this rejection of God. So this is another result, the becoming of fools. They may have PhDs. They may have two PhDs, three. (laughs) But yet, as an unbeliever, it is empty. It's foolish. It has no eternal significance. They became fools, and another step that we'll look at in a moment They exchange something. In other words, that God that they've rejected, they cannot exist without something filling that God-shaped vacuum. So they have to put something else in there. And this explains the seeking of religion worldwide over all of the eons of time. So all of false religion stems from man first rejecting the one true God Now they become foolish, and they come up with alternative thinking. That's the rationalization and the thinking process that's darkened. And that ends up, ultimately, in religion. Make sense? Mm -hmm. This is the explanation for what happens to cultures all over the world. And there's millions of examples of that. So verse 22, let's start off with the beginning there. Professing to be wise. That's not a clause. That's just a... Participial phrase, professing to be wise, this idea of self-deception, by the way. And sometimes education gives you a false sense of, I'm okay because I've got a PhD, or I've got all this insight, or I've got all this knowledge. So I can profess to, to be okay, and I feel like I am wise because I have all this training and background and education, etc. Sorry about that. (laughs) We have a PhD amongst us, (laughs) or a couple of them. Who's the other one? So the results of depravity. We've already seen a distorted thinking. And let's look up these in Ephesians. 
I've chosen the, this is kind of the alternative. As believers, this is what we battle, and these you can view as applications in terms of, okay, I'm a believer now, so if I come from the perspective of a darkened mind or a mind that is distorted, how do I begin to reverse that? I have Christ, and Ephesians 4.23 gives us that. Who wants to follow this? There's several verses I'm going to have you read here. Mark, go ahead. 423. This is the same context. Remember, in the early part there, I think Jenny read 17 and 18, where the mind is darkened in that passage, speaking of the unbeliever there. In fact, he talks about even a callousness that is produced. In other words, it continues to get hardened, so it becomes like a callous there. But then he's given the alternative, and in verse 23, in terms of what's the alternative to distorted thinking? What do we need to do? That you, and that you be renewed in the spirit. Be renewed in your thinking or the spirit of your mind. Renewal. We need to renew it with God's revelation, with what God has revealed. That is the healing process, if you will, if you want to use medical analogy here. The Word of God restores a proper thinking perspective in order for the heart to be able to act on those truths or those foundational ideas. So Ephesians 2, 4.23, distorted thinking. What about destructive morality in the same context, the next verse? How do we deal with that? Because the unbelieving heart is going to produce all these negative things. Now what do we do? Keep reading, Mark 24. And put on the new self, which is in likeness of God, has been created in righteousness of the truth. That's the new self. That's the regenerated person, the inward regenerated heart. We have a new self, a new identity. We have an old nature. We have this new nature. We can describe it that way. And what do we do? We put it on. We own it. It's ours. Don't leave it in the closet. Put it on. In other words... Operate from it day by day. Okay? That corrects the morality. In other words, that that comes out of the heart. Our words are now different. Our words, based on that knowledge, the renewing of the mind, now we can offer praise to God and we can offer words of encouragement to others. We can effect eternal ministry. So that's the alternative that we have as believers. Instead of the destructive morality, we can... Reverse that. And then here we talk about in the passage in verse 22, professing to be wise. That's a false evaluation. In other words, it's a deceptive evaluation. I come to the conclusion I am okay. That's deceptive because I'm not if I'm an unbeliever. 5 8. Do you want to read uh, that one, Mark? Ephesians. All of these are in Ephesians. For you were formerly darkness. Notice the contrast. You were formerly darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. We have an alternative response to all kinds of circumstances. Instead of the deceptive evaluation, think in terms of the new reality that I'm experiencing in Christ. I'm now light. No longer darkness. Yes, you can... mm I was reading at some point about the Word of God coming to some exceedingly poor area of South America, I think it was, and there was drunkenness, there was 
just all sorts of abuses. The people lived in really terrible, terrible poverty. The women slowly started becoming Christians, and they started being kind to their husbands and uh, being kinder to their children. And the husbands were hit by the wife's treatment. Yep. So as the husbands stopped drinking, then they stopped spending all the family's money. And there was a reevaluation of those who had priced in this this more remote area because the children were now going to school. They were fed every right. day. There was no wrath and anger and such not in the household. Yeah. Reorienting transformed Yeah. Those are the effects of regeneration. Right. And there was probably no even teaching on thou shalt not drink anymore, thou shalt not do all these negative things. No, the it's the result of the regenerated heart. Renewed minds, exactly. So professing to be wise, false evaluation. Jenny? I just have to park in Washington State and a group of street preacher people, probably four or five people, uh, and one young lady had on shortest I've ever seen in my life. Shorts, not shorts. Anyway, somehow or other, they went up and they were, and it was so miraculous. In fact, I even put her The rest of the time that in that park, and we saw the spent on us down the whole time. I thought, what an example. Of conviction. Yep. And that's what we're talking about, eternal changes. These are things that have real impact. They're not empty, and it's only in Christ. So, their evaluation, they profess to be wise, but the reality is they became fools. And when we speak of fools, that doesn't mean that they're ignorant. That doesn't mean they don't have education. That means in terms of anything that is lasting, anything that is spiritual, anything that is eternal, they're empty. They're, they're fools in terms of that. So... They're deluded in their foolishness. The alternative, you want to read more, Mark 5, 15, and 16. These are all in close proximity in Paul's little letter to the Ephesians. You could go elsewhere, but I thought it'd be neat just to see them all in Ephesians. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, as wise. Okay, there's, here is wisdom. As opposed to foolishness. Keep reading. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Making the most of your time. In other words, you have a different perspective now on everyday living. So depravity results in distorted thinking, results in destructive morality or lifestyle, you could say. It also results in a deceptive evaluation of one's own person. And in fact, it results in a deluded foolishness. And what else does it say? Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. God has built in all man. In fact, Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the heart. In other words, there's a God-shaped vacuum that only God can truly fill. And when man rejects the real God, the true God, the God of the Bible... Man has to fill that vacuum with something else. So he has to exchange the glory, in other words, the full expression and revelation of the true God, glory of the incorruptible God, in other words, a God that is unchanging, and we can spend time on it. You can't change God. We call that his, what? 
immutability. We believe in God as immutable. In fact, here's one of the passages that supports that idea. God does not change, and certainly he does not change in the negative. So he's incorruptible, but the unbeliever replaces that. And then he's got a long list of things that man replaces it with. So we have a deadly exchange, if you want to continue with the D's there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the places. There's an enemy that's going to bombard us with different ideas, alternative lifestyles. We need to resist that, not make the deadly exchange, but in fact, put on the armor that God has provided. And that's also in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. In fact, the passage goes on and describes that armor. And now he's going to describe how this takes a form. In other words, it's... The exchange takes a form for an image, for a likeness. In other words, it's a likeness of God. That's uh, the word there. There's actually two words here. There's the word icon, the Greek word, but that's the second word. In the icon of corruptible man, in the form is the way it's translated. And then the image is just the word, a common word for something like something else. So you have two words here that describe idolatry, basically. For an image in the form of corruptible man, in the form of man. And if you think historically, how often throughout history you see examples of where man, instead of worshiping the one true God, puts man himself at the center. I think you could include our culture. We are self-centered. And in reality, in most people's thinking... I am God. In other words, everything answers to me. Everything is about me. That's the culture we live in. But you see that historically as well. Mary Lee. Could that also be seen in our belief that the government will solve everything? Yeah. Yep, we can see that in that. So, man, the Babylonians, they worshipped their leaders. Nebuchadnezzar was worshipped as God. He created an image, and it was in, in the form of man. Remember that? Book of Daniel, Babylonians. The Greeks, their gods took the image of man, Apollo, for example, and others. Zeus, these were after the image of man. The Romans as well, what did they do? They worshipped their emperors. They worshipped mankind. Caesar claimed deity, the Caesars. Tibetan Buddhism, they worshipped the Dalai Lama. And even in more recent time, we saw during World War II, the Japanese people, they worshipped their emperor. So this is a tendency in mankind. North Korea today. That's right. So there's not enough space between Japan and the end of the slide there, but we could include it. Yeah. These are just examples of what the thinking of man and the, the attempt to fill that vacuum. We need to worship something. And it most often manifests itself in worshiping man himself. And sometimes it's a devout self-centeredness where we are at the heart of what we worship in essence. And why don't you read uh, 5, 1, and 2 there. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, imitators of the one true God 
as children of God. Keep reading. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you himself up for us. Walk in love. In other words, the alternative is get outside of yourself and what? Think in terms of others. And offering in a sacrifice to God as a fragrant... So, getting outside of ourselves, walk in love. That's the alternative. But you can't do that on your own. No, it's... Agape love is only love that God produces. Exactly. Okay. So, in the form of birds, animals, creatures, it takes all kinds of forms. And you can study each of these. Sometimes it takes the form, in the Egyptians, of birds, literally. Romans also, they had the eagle was in some cases, worshipped as well. You could even include American Indians. What do they worship? The Thunderbird. So it takes different forms in different cultures, but it always goes back sometimes to birds, sometimes to animals. Again, the Egyptians, they worship thousands of different animals. Thousands and thousands of animals. Hinduism also worships some creatures. And crawling things, uh, crawling creatures. In fact, the snake... You could include it. You see it manifest itself in a lot of religions as well. Assyrians, they worshipped crawling creatures. Snakes, Chaldeans or Babylonians, Egyptians again. Not only animals, but specifically crawling creatures. They worship frogs as well, for example. Snakes. So you see these things manifested historically. Because man has an emptiness that only God can fill. Mary Lee. I was going to say, African uh, animism. uh, Yes. That's the same thing. Yeah, you could include animism in that as well. In fact, I've got space. I'm going to have to add it right here. Yeah. Animism. So this is what man does. This is the history of humanity. So that all makes it modern day times. The guys go out and cougars. Right. Oh, cougars must (laughs) (laughs) Today. You're getting too close to home here. (laughs) Okay, let's bring it close to home. Here's a little statement. This is in our culture. False religion takes lots of forms. Today, in America, Mormonism and Muslims are now two of the most rapidly growing religious groups in the United States. Swiping ground from the Protestants and Catholics who dominated the country through the 20th century. We're in the 21st century now. Daily Mail. Just to illustrate it, from 1.5 to 2.6 million in 10 years after 9-11, this is the growth of Islam in the United States. If you want the numbers there, just copy this off the internet there. Notice there's a lot in New Mexico. And which is this county? I can't remember. I think that's Bernal. No, this is Bernal, oh. the green one. Oh. But this one is close to... Socorro, yeah. Yeah. What's that county? Socorro County. Yeah. In other words, just getting close to 5% of the population in that county. Must be a community of them there. In terms of Mormonism, look at this. 4.2 to 6.1 million between 2000 and 2010. So rapid growth there. Look at New Mexico. Lots of Mormons. Lots of Mormons and lots of Muslims. Okay, Islam... Fastest growing religion in the world. Muslims are the only major religious group projected to increase faster than the world's population as a whole. And it says 35% there for Christians, but I think when it has Christians, these are poll numbers. In fact, all of them are poll numbers. It doesn't represent 
true born-again believers. That's just my own interpretive opinion there. Not to speak of new age. Very common. They believe in astral projection, reincarnation, psychic healing, past lives, UFOs, channeling, higher consciousness, transformation in their thinking. How many Americans believe some of that in another poll? A lot? Give me a percentage. Hmm? 87%. Actually, 26% of the U.S. believe in some of those or all. We're surrounded by unbelief, an attempt to fill that emptiness, that vacuum. The occult, you might say the occult is the fastest growing religion today. 200,000 registered witches in the United States. 8 million unregistered practitioners of Wicca. Do the math. What's 300, a little over 300 million? We have 8 million of them. What's the percentage? It's probably low. Here's a quote. Certain parts of the country, such as, and I found this in the same article, certain parts of the country, such as the Pacific Northwest, the mountain states. Where do we live? New Mexico and Colorado. And areas near Salem, Massachusetts, are the strongest in the United States in terms of the occult. There's witches amongst us. Northern New Mexico, Taos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So number seven here, we have degraded religion. Depravity results in distorted thinking. That produces a destructive morality. That also results in a deceptive self-evaluation. We think we're wise. But it's, in reality, a deluded foolishness. And we need to fill that vacuum with something so we have a deadly exchange. And usually it's a devout devotion to self, self self-centeredness. And if not that, then it results in other degrading religions. You want to look at 5, 17, and 18 and come close to finishing. So then, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit. It's the alternative. So we have revelation that is realized, making us responsible. We generally, or humanity, rejects that. We rationalize it away. And that has consequences. We call that reprobation, verse 22. And in 23, we replace it with false gods. But we as believers can praise our Lord for his work of regeneration because we have an alternative. And we can renew our thinking. We can live differently. We can produce things that have eternal value. Who wants to close for? Terry. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for teaching your word, for your truth. Lord, we just praise you for your grace um, to regenerate us. We pray that we can live that out and live close to you to continually renew our minds and hearts to live for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.